Heavenly Father, I pray that you will take my words and speak through them and show your face here. Amen. When Richard Dawkins, the Oxford scientist, looks at nature, he sees such a picture of suffering and waste that he can draw only one conclusion about God, that he doesn't exist. Does the evidence all point in one direction, away from there being a God of love? Have religious people deluded themselves? Or is there some good reason to believe in God? An elderly farmer had always thought claims about Jesus being the Son of God were pretty pointless. He'd never found the God theory very convincing anyhow, and the thought of God taking human flesh in Jesus Christ just seemed silly beyond belief. And then one cold winter night, the farmer found a bat outside one of his barns. He feared that it would freeze to death, and so he opened the barn door, hoping that the bat would fly in out of the cold. But the bat didn't. Terrified, it just clung to where it was. The farmer wondered what on earth he could do to persuade the bat to let him help it. And then he realized that sort of intervention would need him to become a bat. And at once, the story of God coming into the world to save human beings made sense. God could not have reached us in any other way than to become one with us in our humanity. So let's stay with this idea of God in human flesh as we consider the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, which is on page 965 of the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow it. But first of all, let's think about the world into which Jesus came. Israel was under the rule of the Roman Empire, with all the violence and obstruction of being in the thrall of an occupying power. And even God seemed to have abandoned his people. There was a time in Israel's history when God would speak to his people through the prophets. Often he spoke to rebuke them for their behavior. But as Nigel said last week, there'd been no prophecy for 400 years. Being rebuked now looked better than being ignored. In all that time, nobody had heard from God. And God had plenty of reason to wash his hands of the world. Prophet after prophet had reminded Israel that God had called them to be a community with him at their center. They were to be a beacon of justice and godliness to all the nations around and a garden of delight to God himself. And prophet after prophet had been ignored, or worse, put to death for his trouble. Scripture teaches us that God has always intended the world to be a beautiful place. Instead, it was a place of greed and corruption and exploitation, where the needy are sold for a pair of shoes. Again and again, God had challenged through the prophets. Again and again, God was ignored. 
And now for 400 years, he'd kept silent. Who could blame him? Perhaps he'd really, this time, washed his hands of the world. What would be the consequences of God giving up on the human race? And here's just one that I've been thinking about quite a lot in recent weeks, although there would be many more. If God was to give up on the human race, there would be no forgiveness other than what we can muster ourselves. When we did wrong, we'd just have to hope that the person we'd wronged would forgive. And if they didn't, what then? Try to forgive ourselves? You know how hard that can be. What are people like when they feel unforgiven? Some make serious attempts at reforming themselves and are more or less successful. Others manage it, but only for a short time. Others retreat into blaming other people, anything to justify themselves. And when people are doing that, they can be just about impossible to live with. But if it's difficult for other people to live with somebody who's doing that, imagine how much more difficult it is for somebody who's involved in it to live with themselves. If there was no God and therefore no forgiveness, this is all we'd have. Forgive yourself, depend on others' forgiveness, or live in denial. And what when other people sin against us? We might struggle to forgive against all the odds or descend into a spiral of hatred and bitterness. Life without forgiveness is a bleak picture. In his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis paints a picture of the imaginary land of Narnia under the rule of an evil witch. It's an imaginative exploration of life before Jesus and the forgiveness that he brought. The witch has decreed that it shall be always winter, but never Christmas. I don't know how it strikes you, but for many years that image has struck a chord with me of how life would be without the forgiveness of God. Always winter, with its coldness and darkness, but without the light and the hope of Christmas. In Narnia, Father Christmas has been banished. Those who cross the witch are turned to stone because she despises forgiveness. And yet, even she has one name that she fears, literally fears, the name of Aslan the Lion. The witch knows that her reign persists only whilst Aslan allows it. And so when Father Christmas is spotted, the inhabitants know that a thaw is on the way, that Aslan is on the move, and the winter of the witch's rule will give way. Aslan will come into the cold, dark world of Narnia to liberate the land and its people. Well, the coming of Aslan in that story is a metaphor for the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. Matthew, the gospel writer, relates the story. 
What does Matthew want us to know about Jesus? Verse 23 of Matthew 1, we read, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. With us. What does that mean? Alongside us? For us? Looking favorably upon us? And that takes us into the angel's song on the first Christmas night. In Luke 2, verse 14, we read, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men, on whom his favor rests. At his baptism, related in Mark 1, 11, the voice of heaven proclaimed, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Isn't it amazing that the same words that are spoken to Jesus at his baptism are said of human beings by the angels in the skies above Bethlehem on that first Christmas night? That God is pleased with humanity. And there's an echo of the creation story too. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. What all of this tells us is that God loved you before the world was made. As our first song this evening reminded us. God's love comes before the cross. The cross flows out of his love. The purpose of the cross was not to try and ensure that God would love you. No, that was in place first. God is favorably disposed towards human beings because that is his nature. The cross was not to push God into loving us against all the odds. You see the difference. It's an important one. That would be to make a split between the Father and the Son, a loving Jesus trying to make an angry and vengeful God turn away his wrath. That is not the God whom we worship. The cross is God's outpouring of love for humanity. Father and Son, as the creed puts it, are of one being. As God is in Christ, so he is in himself. And all the kindness and goodness and forgiveness that we see in Jesus reveals God as he is. In his gospel, John wrote, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, full of grace and truth. And just as it was in the Son, so it was in the Father. Jesus, the Word, Emmanuel, God with us. It's astonishing. But there's more. All this effort wasn't just so that we'd know that God loves us. Matthew tells us that Joseph was instructed by the angel to call this baby Jesus, which means Joshua. 
Centuries before, there'd been another Joshua. He was the one who'd led the people of Israel into the promised land. Moses had brought them out of Egypt, but it was Joshua who led them into the promised land. Why was the angel so insistent that this baby was to bear that man's name? Mary, the mother of the child, had been given the same command. We're meant to understand that this baby is a new Joshua who will save his people from their sins. A parallel is being drawn between slavery in Egypt and slavery to sin, between the promised land in the Old Testament and life everlasting with God. This is the Joshua who will lead people from slavery to sin to life in the promised land of heaven. By his cross and resurrection, he will make it possible for human beings to be forgiven, to come into the presence of God and to enjoy God forever. Sin matters. It took the cross to remove the penalty of sin. If God just turned a blind eye, it would be as if he was saying, well, there, there, never mind, it's not really that serious. When we know that sin is serious, think of the consequences of it and the way that very often it's other people who have to bear them. God can't simply turn a blind eye. But God loves and doesn't want to write us off. And so, flowing from his love, comes the cross to pay the price, to bridge the gap between man and God. God loved you since before the world began and he will love you for all eternity. Nobody can do anything to stop God from loving you. When we can't forgive ourselves or when we can't forgive somebody else, we can tap into this forgiveness wrought by the cross. It's like saying, God has forgiven, and so I'm going to go with that. And hopefully, one day I will wake up and find that I've forgiven from my heart too. And when God says that you are forgiven, well, there's no greater authority than that. So yes, I note Richard Dawkins' observation about the suffering of creation and feel it. But it doesn't mean that the evidence about God all points to his non-existence. If that baby in the manger was God, as I and many others here believe and trust, then there's every reason to believe in a God of love. The universe is not a silent, empty place. There's light in the darkness. On the font at the front of the church, we have an Advent wreath. The Advent wreath began in northern Sweden, where it doesn't get light very much at all for much of the winter. And people would take a cartwheel and put lights on it, And when the wheel was spun gently, it would create the look 
of a great mound of continuous light. In that cold, dark place near the Arctic, it's a warm and heartening symbol of the light of Christ coming into this world. Well, that leaves us with the question of how we can have God in our lives. And the amazing truth is this, that all you have to do is to ask. It's not a question of earning it. None of us can make ourselves good enough for God. In fact, the idea that we can, well, it's kind of funny, really, that this holy God somehow can ever be bought off or impressed enough with our good deeds because he is just so much greater, so much, so beyond us. So there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with him. All we can do is to ask for his gift of salvation and forgiveness. So having God in your life is not about clocking up enough good works to impress him. All he asks is that you invite him into your life to bring forgiveness, a change of heart, and his presence to be with you forever and ever. And he promises to come in. I'm going to pray a prayer now. And if you would like to invite Jesus to be in your life, to forgive your sin and to be your saviour, then you might like to pray this prayer in your heart as I pray. And at the end of the service, there'll be people at the front who would love to pray with you. Do come and make yourself known to them, and they will be very pleased to help you. So let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for bringing your light and life into this world, for saving us from our sins by your cross and giving us the peace of your acceptance and forgiveness. I turn away from all that is wrong and ask you to come into my life as Saviour and Lord. Amen.